Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I'm delighted to have Kate Lewis, who's founder and CEO of e for enable Kate, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Good to be on. Excellent. Could you give the listeners 90 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, been in sales probably about 25 years, leadership for 20 of that-ish of that. I think like many probably accidentally slipped into uh, into sales. But my biggest joy has been in, in leadership, has been leading and coaching teams of varying degrees from, from sort of newbies into sales to enterprise big ticket uh, environments with, with long lead cycles. So, yeah. Excellent. Okay. So tell me this, what are the four most common questions people ask you around coaching and enabling sales teams? Yeah, that's a really, a really good question. So one of the, uh, one of the big areas I think is the rhythm. So we get asked a lot on, okay, so how often should I be coaching? How often should I be having, uh, setting objectives? How often should I be doing these things? That's probably the number one question in for us, particularly when we're, uh, we're onboarding new clients, I would say, and, and new leaders. And I think it's about an agreement with the people that you're coaching. I think that more often than not, it's asking them the question. And it will depend very much on their stage of their career, where they are in, in the business, where they are in terms of performance and very much what they want to achieve. And I think that coaching contract almost um, from an early, you know, an early engagement with your team is really, really important. We're finding that managers who coach for three to three and a half hours per individual per month will typically have an average quota attainment of 105%. Managers who coach less than that are typically achieving individual performance of 40 to 60%. So there is no getting around it. Coaching is the differentiating factor between on-target performance and missing target by a country mile. I agree. What's the second question that you're often asked? How much is too much in terms of objectives? I like to think of it as the noise question. So a lot of people are nervous about that balance between saying to somebody, I, I need you to go hit number versus I need you to focus on developing yourself in this area and having that as a, a very clear and set objective. So we often find, again, when we're onboarding new managers and, and engaging with a, a, a cohort of new managers, that their questions are around how often should I set people objectives around their own development? So that's slightly on the similar strain to, to the rhythm of, of how often should I coach, but more to do with how often should I set specific learning objectives, specific development objectives and coaching objectives. So I'd like to pick up on a couple of things that you said there. The first thing is setting objectives. Yep. So my, my question there is what works better than setting an objective? Well, again, that goes back to coaching 101, isn't it? Excuse me, perhaps if I use the say the wrong terminology there. This is about agreeing with an individual and coaching them to what what they want to achieve and therefore what how they believe they need to get there. I'm a, a great believer in using simple things like like grow as a as a coaching methodology, which is, you know, what what is it that you're trying to achieve? What's the goal? You know, what's the reality of where you are now? And therefore, what do you need to do? What's the path that will take you to achieving your goal? And and have you got the 
balls to to get there really and, and have you got the will have you got the desire to go and do it and that bit about the kind of gap and, the, and the, the path between that's my goal this is the reality and this is the path I need to get there that needs to be drawn out of an individual you, you know because as a manager one of the things you have to realize is that you don't have all the answers that you don't know what the right path is for that individual and so you're absolutely right to call me up on saying setting objectives. It might be a, a very system terminology, but this is about the individual saying, I recognize that this is what I need to do. But one of the things that you need to make sure both in that relationship between coach and coachee is holding each other accountable for doing that. Otherwise, you just get a really long to-do list. You get a really long desire list of things I, I really ought to get around to doing. And, and I'm a great believer in saying, okay, if we're going to do that, that, that final bit, that will, the balls to do it is so important to say, right, are we going to hold ourselves accountable? What are we going to do? When are we going to do it by? Well, you've touched, that's more important. So you've touched on something else that's crucial, but most managers don't understand that our responsibility is, when we're coaching, it's a two-way flow. My very good pal, Bill Bartlett, wrote a book called The Sales Coach's Playbook. And in there, he talks about the three Ps, potency, protection, and permission. And it's establishing uh, some clear boundaries and ground rules about equal business stature. So it goes both ways. It's not just me feeding you. It's both of us learning from one another. Making Mm -hmm. sure that the person who's being coached knows that they can speak freely that's potency. And protection is they won't be punished for speaking their truth. And it's also critical that coming into a coaching session, both of you are prepared. And when you leave, you establish very clear objectives with timelines and commitments that both of you then address so that you're moving forward. Because otherwise you spend an awful lot of time going from one coaching session to the next, just spinning your wheels. Yeah, absolutely. Have lovely, lots of lovely coffees and cups of tea, but not actually making the progress that that you want. Absolutely. And managers only have four functions in my book. Every every manager's job description should read like this. Hire the best people. Get the best out of them. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And then help them clear the path in order to get past any roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from senior management uh, from above. yeah, the other stuff is largely lipstick on a pig. Yes, you have to record. Um, but if you're, if you're putting the right inputs in, then the right outputs are going to happen. And you should be tracking uh, the stuff you can control, which is behavior. Uh, the yep. result is a byproduct of how well you've done and how often you've done those behaviors. So what's the third most common question you get asked? How do you coach people who don't want to be coached? Is always a good one. Um, I think your response to that. Um, I think that is a is always generally a challenging one. I think that you've got to, again, as the coacher or as the coach, change your mindset on on not what you want the individual to achieve, but what they want to achieve for themselves. And if you can change that mindset and think, the person I'm, I want to coach if I can understand what motivates them, if I can truly understand what they want to achieve, then there are things that that we can have a conversation about that will help them get there. But that means you've got to not go in with a preconceived idea 
about what you think they ought to be doing and what you think they ought to achieve. So, you know, there are people who have been in role for, you know, a, a long, 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 long time and smashed it and done really well. Don't try and think, well, the next stage is for them to go for a promotion. I've got to get them to coach up to that. It might be that they just want to stay doing what they're doing and help coach others. It might be that they want to be doing something completely different. It might be that there's something about their personal element because we need to coach the whole person. That's really, really important that they want to achieve. So I think we've got to, we've got to strip away some of that. But I want this for you. I can see this great thing in your future too. Look, there's something that might be unaware, you know, you might be unaware of right now, but it might be something that will, will help you become a more rounded person, a better person or a better at this or, or, or improved at that part of your life. Well, again, I think you've touched on some really important factors here. And the understanding of someone's motivation needs to come in the recruitment phase if you're hiring new people into your team. If you don't understand a new hire's personal motivation, it's impossible for you to tie their personal motivation to their corporate objectives. Do you think, sorry to interrupt there, there Marcus, do you think that's, that's always possible? I, I'd say you need to continually understand somebody's motivations right from them because it's very difficult. When you're in the hiring process, particularly for younger salespeople coming in, and, and I'd say right, you know, right, right way through careers, to sit and understand in an interview that somebody's really telling you their true motivations. They'll tell you what they think you want to hear. And I think it takes quite a lot of trust building up over time in that relationship to really understand and uh, not I'm feel fear. I agree with you that it's something that's ongoing. Uh, but I, I'm hearing you fight for uh, a management disability. If the manager doesn't understand how to get to that truth, I understand that you know, you're dealing with someone, it's their first sales job, and they don't really understand what their ambitions are or what's possible. But you can absolutely, through effective interview approach, uncover what makes them tick, what they love to do, uh, what they where they want to travel, the things that they want to do, be, have, become, why they're doing it. And uh, again, I hate it when managers impose on the salesperson their assumption. The idea that salespeople are motivated by money is a myth. If they were motivated by money, they'd be making a hell of a lot more than they are. I agree. Do you know, it's funny, I've had a number of people ask me to fill in those behavioral questionnaires to try to work out how to then recruit in a model. And what they're looking for is salespeople are really competitive and really money motivated. And in every single one that I have ever filled out, it's popped out, you're not suitable for sales. Now, my performance over the years and everything I've done would want to argue otherwise. So I was this anomaly. And do you know what? I think sometimes it's the anomalies that graces people to engage with, but it does take time and understanding. And sometimes people don't always necessarily know immediately what motivates them. I, I, I yo yo all over the place. And it takes a good coach. It does take a good coach to draw that out of you and to help you on your own journey to understanding more about yourself. I agree. And I think the coaching begins in the recruitment process. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier on about the pre-onboarding cycle. And I'd love to dig more into that because I think one of the parts that 
uh, one, one of the components of a good new hire in sales is that they are coachable. And I want to see evidence of it in the interview process when they're under pressure. And I want to see that they can adapt. You know, Darwin was never talking about survival of the brawniest or the greediest. He was talking about those who could adapt to the best of the current environment. So I want someone who is coachable, who has some intellectual humility about them. They know that they're not the finished article. And I interviewed a really fascinating guy, Phil McGowan. He's an academic at the University of Portsmouth, and he's successfully grown and built eight businesses. Uh, he sold five of them, and he suffered a personal tragedy, and he decided he was going to change his focus in life. And he became an academic, and his research is really fascinating. It's taken the aggregate of over 5,000 academic papers on sales and condensed them all into one and identified some really fascinating findings. And one of the things that he would always do is when he was looking for salespeople, the one who thought they were the finished article could never hire. Mm -hmm. It was the ones who knew that they weren't and were hungry to learn and develop, and they were willing to ask for help. And those are the ones who were malleable enough to adapt. And he, he managed to sell five businesses very successfully in IT. And what was really interesting about that was the deficits that came out from that research in management. And more often than not, the most telling and most pressing area is in the failure of management rather than the failure of the salespeople. Yeah. uh, We can go into that in a bit more detail in a second. So what's your fourth most commonly asked question? Well, it's it's probably a nice segue. We didn't set this up, I promise, Marcus. But my, my final thought or the fourth question I get asked is, how do you coach? I will honestly tell you, and, and it kind of leads on to another area I want to talk about later, but I, I can honestly tell you that most organizations that we speak to have woefully underinvested in the training of their managers. Oh. Woefully uninvested. And just expected that you'll, you'll be fine, you'll, you can do this. And that is a huge challenge for me because in my mind, as a manager, as a leader, you, you are the linchpin. You are the person that can have the biggest impact on, your, on your, the, the, the culture and the performance. Not because you're driving with a whip and saying, do more for less, but because you can embed change, you can create an environment where people want to be better where people have the drive. That is a big skill. So I get asked, and it's something we don't generally do, but I get asked all the time, well, okay, so have you got any tips to help our managers coach? Or managers saying, have you got any tips that we can use to to, to coach better? I'm delighted you said that. Like you said, we didn't set this up, but that's exactly one of the key skills that we teach our clients because most of them do what was done to them which is telling. So if you look at behavior, attitude, and technique, behavior can be managed. Attitude needs to be coached, attitudes, beliefs, values, and skills, technique needs to be trained. And the problem is that most managers, when they're coaching, think that they're coaching, but actually what they're trying to do is training or telling. Many of them use the carrot to beat people with So um, (laughs) they uh, use incentives and spiffs and competitions and all that kind of stuff. And that doesn't 
work generally. There's a fabulous book called Punished by Reward by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N, which all managers should read and anyone setting a comp plan should read. And we're in the third generation of managers who, first of all, have no idea how to prospect because they've resorted to email and hiding behind social and they have no idea how to coach. So Google did a really interesting piece of research called Project Oxygen and being able to do the job came eighth in their hierarchy. Um, However, you still have to be able to do the job because it's very difficult to be able to coach it. You can't. And so you need to be able to look at what the inputs are, the behaviors, the competencies that Mm -hmm. allow someone to be successful so that you can coach them in order to get better. And to build on your point, managers are, sales managers are in the single most precarious role in any business. Two quarters and you're out if you're not producing. And they get 5%, 5% of the global training budget. And the typical route is they tap you on the shoulder and they say, Kate, your boss was an idiot. Congratulations. You've now taken over. You're now going to be the idiot in charge. <laughs> and that's the entire runway. So take me to this bit now. What are the three questions they should ask, but they don't? Great question. Okay, so the first one leads on from that which is we get asked a lot around what would you suggest would be good sales competencies? You know, being a competency-based platform, it's right, well, what, what does good look like? We've got a lovely library of those. What we, what we never get asked is what should sales manager competencies look like? <laughs> what does good look like for sales like managers? Never get asked that question, and I really, really wish that that would be the number one thing. So what, um, does, what does good look like when it comes to sales management competencies? That's a great question. We don't have as much of a library built up because people don't come to us. We're generally saying, right, this is this is the few that we, we we have from our clients that do lead with that. The first one for me is that they give a shit. That's a hard one to quantify. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you put that in a platform saying to give a shit. Yeah, but, I, no, I'm all in favor of that. I think that's a really good <laughs> But people exhibit caring about others around them, that they are as invested in other people getting to their quota as a team, wanting to do things and to share their knowledge is absolutely fundamental. You can't do a sheep dip approach. And and, and as you say, Kate, your manager's just left, you're it. And I was an individual quota bearer that didn't interact with anybody. That's a recipe for disaster. (laughs) So, you know, a good competency is if you can be more eloquent than me, is, is giving a shit. That's where that sort of starts. And the other thing, and, and this is uh, counterintuitive in sales sometimes, but patience. Okay, patience not to expect an immediate outcome. That's really hard, right? Because sales is often driven by, go make 10 more calls, get one more opportunity, close it, do it by the end of this month. We can do this. If you're looking for long-term behavior change and you're looking to coach somebody to achieve their goals, you need to have patience and you need to be willing to do things consistently and in a particular way to get to that goal. Instant gratification ain't where it's at if you're going to be a good sales leader. This is, again, really interesting because I think CRM is largely to blame. The way CRM is typically set up in conjunction with bad management culture, is beating with the stick to fill, do more activity at the front end. So what you end up with is a pipeline full of shit. 
they're just trying to get the number of calls and the number of meetings up in order that they don't get punished. Then, as soon as you put an opportunity into the CRM, what's the first question it asks you? What's the close date? So you go from the front end to the back end. And I think one of the things that great managers do is they really are patient about working the middle of the funnel. And they concentrate their salespeople on that. There's some terrifyingly bad statistics out there. So on average, only 12% of first meetings convert into second meetings. That means 88% of all the activity at the front end, all that frenetic prospecting, cold calling, marketing, going to networking events, trade shows, advertising, you just burn. You, frankly, you would be better buying lottery tickets than wasting that money. Secondly, KPMG did some research last year, and they asked CEOs about the value that salespeople bring. And on average, CEOs or CXOs returned this response. Six minutes in every hour, they derived some value from having a salesperson in front of them. Six minutes. That means 54 minutes was wasting their time. Now, is it any wonder only Mm -hmm. one in eight meetings turns into a second meeting? Yeah. So focusing on the right end of the problem, I think, would be a really good characteristic of managers. Focus on the, the leading indicators, the inputs, measure the right things and learn how to push back to acts of idiocy from above where you've got a CFO who's really interested in CRM as an audit tool. It's not an audit tool. It never has been and it shouldn't be used like that. CRM's purpose is to help salespeople sell more, more often to more people for more money. And if Mm -hmm. it's not enabling salespeople to do that, you've made a fundamentally bad decision and you've just wasted a load of money. Crazy. Absolutely ludicrous. So second question that they should ask but don't. What would you typically want to achieve by doing this? So it's not a question of me. It's a question that I think that they should ask of themselves and and of their initiative, which is, why are we doing it? I see too many people not going, let me go into this a bit more. I like to ask the question of, if we fast forward six months, if we fast forward 12 months and I'm coming to you and I'm saying, here's your renewal, it's gone up by X percent, we've, we've expanded the scope, it's going to be, and you think it's brilliant and you've got to go justify it to your boss, what are you going to say? Absolutely. And that's the measure of success. And that's a really, it's a question they don't ask of themselves. It's something that they probably know somewhere deep down, but being able to quantify your measure of outcome. And it's not just we've increased revenue. Isn't that's not not what this is about. That's one measure of success. But it it is about asking yourself why are we doing this? And and that's about everything. If you're going to invest in sales training, why? What do you want out of it? What is your expectation? If you're going to introduce a culture of coaching, how are you going to measure that this has been embedded? How are you going to measure the outcomes? You know, if you're going to go through this type of process, be clear because you're going to have to defend your position. And it will help you have that patience, that, out, that, that, that sort of process to follow, if you know that that's the outcome that I am, I'm going for in, in, you know, in the long run. So that's a question that I wish they'd ask of themselves. And again, I think very often they're more interested in the final number, not getting everyone there. And so one of the things, or a couple of things that I see, One is that there's very little engagement 
with the people who are actually going to be suffering this change. The second thing is that we see managers working on just one or two of their salespeople and not elevating everybody. And when I interviewed Tom Shodorf from Splunk, one of the things that they did, which I thought was beautifully smart, was they had an awards event somewhere really nice and exotic, which everyone wanted to go to, but the manager couldn't attend unless 80% of the people that report to them hit or exceeded quota. So that focused them on making sure that they were elevating the team performance, not just riding the success Mm. of one or other of their salespeople. And I think a third element of this is that there is a tendency, particularly in VC-backed companies, to over-assign quota. And so you've got to generate 100 million And if you add up all the quotas of all the salespeople, it's 150 million. So you end up having everybody worn out who's getting you there. The CEO and the CFO are cracking a bottle of champagne because they've hit their number. The investors are happy bunnies. But then you end up burning your salespeople out. Why not allocate appropriately and then help your salespeople to do their job well? It's just crazy. And you do this all the time. And I think that's a lack of vision and blurred imagination from leadership because they don't understand sales and they don't understand how hard it really is. Well, they've forgotten. The road to CEO is either tip has historically been CFO or VP of sales. And the VP of sales is interested in the number. The CFO is interested in the number. A VP of sales has forgotten how hard it is to be at the shitty end of the stick. And they've forgotten how difficult it was uh, to get engaged and to learn all this stuff. And they probably were benefited from having good mentors, good role models. But if if you look at how crap most managers are at the moment, only 6%, we did a research paper last year, the Sander Research Center, and we found only 6% of managers are actually qualified for the role. So your point, how do you coach and develop your managers, I think is really important. So I'd like to investigate the the idea of uh, creating a runway so while they're in a sales position, yeah. uh, there's a proper runway. So by the time they actually get the tap on the shoulder, they're capable of doing the job instead of losing a producer and gaining an utterly bloody awful manager. No, absolutely. I like, I like the notion of behaving for the job you want. And that for me means to do it at a scale, you need to start implementing things like real career progression planning. And that means that you need to be clear on the competencies that you're looking for in a manager. So if you are, if you have the desire to be a manager, and that's that's a big thing. I would question that. Lots of people think they want to be a manager. They want that the status. Means, they, yeah, they that want just needs the wrong reasons. Rid of. They think that that's the right way to go. I've, you know, and, and again, it's what motivates you. I've seen people move into those roles and move back into into quota bearing because they don't like the noise and the politics of being a manager. You have to have some really bloody broad shoulders being a manager to properly shoulder the weight coming down and not just automatically apply it down. But you need to have that, to, to your point, Mark, is the runway. So if, if I'm in a role and I'm having that right coaching conversation and we've understood my goals and what motivates me, and I've said and we've both agreed that a management position is, is it a good move for me? I want to know what the competencies are for that management position six months in advance of me doing it. Um, I want that to be something that I'm coached to way ahead of where I'm going to move to that role. Absolutely. I, I, I think six months for something 
as sophisticated and complex as management, that's the minimum. 12, 18 months runway, I think, is probably safer bet. But I also think that managers need to be bold enough and again, it goes back to skills enough and, and train them to be, be able to question people and, and, and coach people that that isn't the only path when we're thinking about a career. And, you know, part of that, and this is a, a, a strange one, part of that is being okay to positively allow somebody to move out of the business. You know, as you move up that, you can't have everybody take a management position or an enterprise sales position. There's a point at which the funnel gets too small. And you've got to be okay with thinking, I just don't have the runway and I'm either going to let performance tail off or I'm going to promote people into the wrong roles. You have to be brave enough to do that. A former client of mine was the HR director for a very large pharmaceutical company. And they had a problem because the chemists really wanted the black leather seated car. They wanted to turn left on a plane. And if they didn't get a management role, they'd leave. And so they ended up getting a brain drain. And the solution, which I think is beautifully elegant and incredibly clever, was that instead of taking a management role, they had to agree to mentor five of the junior chemists. And so they transferred those skills. By doing that, what they were able to do was transfer the skill and they were able to then build the next generation of scientists and keep their top talent. And net result of that, I think, in a sales environment is if you have your top salespeople mentoring, because they're not great at management, you know, your top producer Mm. uh, is a lone wolf, but they will take on board uh, somebody who is really ambitious, doesn't get in the way, doesn't waste their time. And so one of the things I teach my very young clients to do, but again, I think this is across the board, anyone can do this is identify people whose history is your future and then get in touch with them and say, Kate, I wonder if I can ask an enormous favor of you. Would you be open to mentoring me for 20 minutes a month? And I promise you, I will never waste your time. I will come prepared and I will come with one question that I need help with. Would you be open to helping me on a monthly basis, just 20 minutes? And you'd be amazed at the number of people who say yes. Now, those who do that with five or six end up getting some phenomenal direction. And there's a big difference between coaching and mentoring. Mentoring is, I have a problem. This is how I would fix it. Uh, This is how you can fix it. Coaching is having the other person work out 80 to 90% of Mm -hmm. themselves. Different skill set, but incredibly valuable both. I like to take that to the next level, though, because I can always see in in the top performers, there's always something about each top performer that I think, oh, God, I want to replicate that. I hate the fact that they're in silos. I like to think rather than matching person to person, because I don't want to create new people that look exactly like that. I like to match skill to skill. So if there are areas of development for one particular individual, I think, you know, you, you really need to learn to up the game of how you're talking in a particular way to a particular cohort of people, or you need to be doing this. Or I like to pair that with people who are good at that. And that way they're getting exposure to a breadth of people. Those people that are doing the mentoring are mentoring in an area that they are classified as an expert in. And you get this spider effect of, of interlinking, which means that you've got knowledge and experience coming out of everybody's heads and and filtering out through the organization. So it's a similar way of doing it, 
but it removes that that kind of one-to-one only one view only one worldview and I think mentoring works brilliantly when you've got lots of different people feeding in I think that's really good there's a fabulous book by Patrick Lencioni called Silos Politics and Turf Wars Patrick Lencioni and that's really worth a read and very few people can overcome that problem and the the challenge with um, silos is that if you allow them to occur what you might find is that each silo is performing brilliantly at what they mm-hmm. do. But they're working across purposes. So they end up become, making the organization very inefficient. And you end up with an awful lot of blame and complaining. But what you also find is that people get very disgruntled very quickly. And it's your top talent that leaves. So yeah. if you don't address that, it can be crippling. Well, this is really fascinating. Okay, what's the third unasked question? The third honest question, again, it's not that we set this up, Marcus, but is along those lines, which is the question I never get asked, what about customer success? So sales coaching is, 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 is a movement that's growing. And I, I like that it's growing. It's got, it's got so far to go. It's, 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 it's baby steps. But I think there's also a whole untapped area that sits in a silo. And I've seen a couple of organizations break that, and it's great. But customer success has ended up becoming a little island and they don't get the same training and they don't get the same input. And there's no customer success coaching. <laughs> it's let's talk about sales coaching. Let's talk about all that. But that is as just so, so important in making sure it's not siloed. And exactly the same ethos, investment, coaching, leadership traits need to happen in customer success. Yes, you might need a slightly breed, a different breed of person. And yes, there are different competencies. But for crying out loud, do not forget about what's running the big bit of your business and making sure that you're not forgetting about them because they've got a massive influence over the future of your business. Well, interestingly enough, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was written by the guy who recognized this in Salesforce. And in fact, Salesforce have made sales uh, report into customer success. And customer success is part of the entire journey. And uh, again, I think many organizations don't, they forget or ignore the fact that as far as the customer is concerned, anything that touches them is part of marketing. And anything that touches them represents your brand. And you aren't making sure that that customer experience all the way through is irreproachable and excellent, then that will be uh, the chink in your armor. Now, I take this to a slightly different level because I'm mildly self-serving here. And I think the other element is partner success. Not applying similar principles in terms of your channel, particularly now. The UK has, this is the 11th of May, 2020. And Uh, the UK is implementing a two-week quarantine period for anyone who sets foot on a plane that lands in the UK. Other countries, I suspect, will be implementing that as well. Now, that's pretty much putting the end, you know, that's signing the death knell to business travel because who's going to give up a month of their life in quarantine to go and uh, crack a deal? Yeah, if you're going to get three billion, you probably will. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, if it's 100 grand, and you're going to make 10 grand off it or 20 grand, chances are that's too big an expense to invest. So my view is that the world of sales will go through a massive change over the next six to 18 months. 
and more and more emphasis will have to be on the channel. And if you are not recruiting and onboarding, training, developing, and coaching your partners effectively so they feel that the experience is great, then you're going to end up in a very, very bad place. Thoughts? I think that in any endeavor you do, defining what good looks like and then putting the work in to get there is essential. Whether that's you're running your own sales team, whether it's your customer success team, or whether it's just channel team, I think you have to have clarity of, of kind of vision as to what, what you want to get to, what does that, and, and, and what path will take us there, and then do that consistently and invest in it and maintain that to embed it as a culture. So I would say exactly the same ethos, the same process is important, you know, irrelevant to kind of COVID, you know, from my perspective, should always be the case. Absolutely. What are we setting out to achieve? What is the best way to get there? What does good look like? And then how do we develop our partners, our customer success and our salespeople to be in rhythm and tandem together? in doing it because if you're investing everything in one channel or one way of doing it and you're forgetting the others, then you've got the potential for that to break because you're not all on the same message. You're not all doing the same thing. So having that in tandem and having the same vision and the same investment in each is really important. I receive overly frequent messages from certain of our partners and always feels very self-serving. So while they're they're couched in terms about how they're helping us, it's fairly clear from the tenor and the tone that they're really interested in us being a get-out sales-free card for them. And I think very often, if you don't start with the customer or the partner in mind, what their motivation is, why they are in business, what they're trying to achieve. And the same thing in management, if you don't start with where your salesperson is, then you will invariably find yourself coming unstuck and being deeply disappointed with the results. And then you're pulling your hair out thinking, well, why isn't it working? Mm-hmm. Well, my advice, look in the mirror. If it's not working, look in the mirror. Are you a good partner? Are you a good manager? Is your intent in the right place? Is your focus on the right end of the problem? Or are you then pointing the finger and blaming your partners, your salespeople for their non-performance? I think it's clarity of expectation and, you know, a good dose of realism. And it goes back to that patience that we talked about earlier. I think we are in sales, in in channel, in in otherwise, we are a group of very impatient, short-termist view holders, essentially. If we've got clarity of expectation and we've set that out because we know that that's what good looks like and we know, again, we're looking back. I mean, it's grow, grow methodology. This is the path we'll do to get there. These are the measures along the way that will be indicators, leading indicators that we're, we're on that right path. This is the investment we're all signed up to. And we're going to keep doing it consistently. We're not going to have a wobble after month one because we haven't got loads of incoming leads from our channel or the customer success isn't doing it. Hold your your course because it is a course. You've plotted it well. You've got clarity of expectation, and you will get there. But but having those indicators of success along the way is really really important. But again, I think that so much of what we do in sales leadership, in channel leadership, is really short termist, and and we think we'll sign up a few partners, and by the end of next month, we'll be millionaires, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I don't know if you're familiar with this 
lovely law called Price's Law, which is the square root of the number of people in your organization will deliver 50% of your production. And the other 50% will come from the remainder. So if you have 50 salespeople, chances are seven will produce 50%. And whatever the they'll produce 25% of that. I'm curious about your thoughts on this, because I think what happens is people tend to build a land army of salespeople. And as a result, they then end up being very disappointed. They churn. What are we going to do about sales? What are we going to do about these performance? And I think if you're more selective in the recruitment process and you are very clear about what good looks like and what the must-have characteristics are, then don't recruit people who have seven out of the ten. If they're must-have, then make sure they all have them. And then you're going to be a lot less disappointed. So I'm curious in terms of the output within your client base, how are they using uh, your e-for-enable platform in order to identify what the winning qualities are so that they can keep iteratively improving their recruitment process? Good question. Okay, so there's a couple, I, I'm, I'm going to answer a question you didn't ask first. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the, the challenges for the sales leaders and HR leaders in recruitment today is the pressure from above to get bums on seats can't have an empty patch, can't have an empty patch. Where, how, how are you going on with that hiring? Needs somebody, needs somebody, needs somebody. That makes inexperienced sales leaders do silly things like employ the wrong people because they need bums on seats and somebody that perhaps wasn't perfect, that fit, as you said, seven out of 10 of them, we'll, we'll, we'll take them on board. I think you've got to decide what are your essential things? You know, what are the things that you can't grow? that you can't train. And those are the things that become your Bible of recruitment. Yeah, The things that you need in your organization that you either don't have the time or it is just simply isn't possible. So some of the attitudes that, that you would want, um, to your point, I think earlier, Marcus, that coachability. So what's interesting in, in our client base is that they have the ability to umbrella And so they can view competencies at a global level and measure competencies that the the teams that are performing well and developing those particular competencies and what the knock-on impact to their leading indicators are within the business. So they can start seeing where they would potentially make investment or adjust or want to hire to those behaviors and competencies. So being able to take yourself out of the weeds and come up and say, okay, so we can see where the hub of performance, those that have really taken on the coaching conversation, those that have really invested in these competencies are correlated to higher outcomes, better outcomes, higher retention rates for those, uh, those individuals, and better results overall, and then being able to replicate that across the teams. Interesting. Do you see them change the competencies as they go? when they realize that things like number of leads, number of dials, number of emails, number of first meetings actually doesn't really give them useful metrics other than as a comparison uh, between with the number of unique effective conversations. Second meetings, the velocity with which opportunities move through the pipeline, the volume of opportunities moving from qualified to closable. Do Do you see that kind of shift? 
we don't necessarily encourage them to change the competencies too often because then you just get confused people and too much change too often going, oh, that didn't work, let's change it. Again, it goes to that patience thing. So we need to get a run of, of information. What I find most telling is where they'll start looking for benchmarks of behavior. So, so to your point, being able to see that Bob, who sat 100 meetings and is smashing it this month on meetings, oh my God, Bob, he is our meeting guy, has generated 10 grand of pipeline. <coughs> Whereas Sally's done 10 meetings and generated 100 grand worth of pipeline. Bob looks like he's doing better because that's what we said was a measure of, of success. No, 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 no. Change your benchmarks the other way around. Yeah, in my mind, absolutely. If I could do one meeting and generate as much pipeline as I would out of 10, I'd do one meeting. Yeah. That's called efficiency. And that's called being very, very good at qualifying and knowing that that meeting is going to have a good outcome and being able to predict that. And that starts going to predictable revenue outcomes and, and, and all of that manner. But being able to benchmark, and that's actually quite a eureka moment when people realize the people doing the inane activities are not our best performers. That's actually probably one of the biggest areas that I think causes a shift. That causes the shift of saying, those aren't the measures of success. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Tell me, what what are you being influenced by in terms of what you're reading, listening to or watching at the moment? It's not an easy answer that, if I'm honest, because my influences are from everywhere. I find that... You like eclectic. I like eclectic. And I think if you don't do eclectic, you find yourself in a bubble. LinkedIn is very good at this. Google, very good at it. Twitter is very good at it. You tend to link with people that you have a like-minded view to. But that makes you believe that you live in a bubble where everybody thinks like you. So I like to take as much as I can from differing viewpoints, from differing angles, as much as I can. I'm not a very good business book reader. I'm a terror. I can't, I just can't absorb it. So I like bite size. I like blogs. I like, I was introduced to podcasts like this a wee while ago. I like things like that, even just snippets of posts on LinkedIn. And then I like to process them and, and create it into my own style. You've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Kate, age 23, who knew everything, was invincible, immortal. What advice would you give her in order to avoid a lifetime of misery and self-sabotage? Be honest with yourself is a huge one. Be clear about not necessarily what you want for the long term. I didn't know really what I wanted. I didn't have it all knitted out. I didn't have this long-term plan with 29 steps that I needed to follow to get to become CEO or VP, but to make it so that it was comfortable to me, go back to, to kind of short-term goals and understand what motivates me. That, that's always been a, a bigger challenge. And to unapologetically be myself. It took me a wee while to be very comfortable just being me. And I think it, that was my 20s, being what people thought I ought to be and behaving in a way. And I don't think that you need to earn the right to be yourself. I think you can be yourself right from the get-go. So, you know, at 21, at 22, at 23, just be you is probably one of, one of the biggest things. Um, don't follow somebody else's dream or, or follow what somebody else wants. I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to ask a very non-PC question, but I think it's very relevant given the disparity in gender balance in IT. What was it like being a woman in sales in IT and taking what you just said about being yourself? How did you 
managed to thrive in that environment without compromising on trying to be like the majority of the male salespeople. And we can always delete this if we need to. <laughs> I love this question because I've got really strong views about it. I can tell you the biggest thing is that I never, ever saw myself as a woman in IT. I never noticed that some people had willies and some people didn't. I was just getting on with me and my job. I might have acted in a little bit way, but that wasn't because of my gender. That was just because I thought this is what professional looks like. But there was never a moment, and I worked in a floor looking back, and I didn't really notice it, of, of mostly men. And, you know, in my early career, I was in the, you know, all the ICL mainframe days. Forget about the fact that you're genetically different from other people. Plot your own course. Don't listen to that noise. You know, I've never, ever seen myself as a woman in sales, a woman in business, a woman in IT. I'm just in business, in IT. And I don't allow, and I've never allowed, not purposefully or otherwise, myself to be preoccupied by somebody's gender. So I didn't think, oh, I'm a, I'm a woman in this male environment. I just thought of myself as a person in the environment. I'm delighted you said that because I have three daughters and I'm uh, always looking for great role models <laughs> who basically put two fingers up and say, you're going to take me on my talent. Okay, really? fabulous. So final question then. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think what became very apparent uh, earlier on is, is being able to right now sort of forecast the future. All the business plan has sort of been ripped up a little bit. So, so to take some of my own medicine is absolutely to say, I need to relook at, at not what good looks like for, for my salespeople and myself individually. I don't think that's changed. But what good looks like for, for my business and what the measure of that will be needs recutting between now and you know in 12 months from now and i think hope needs to be buried and uh, and and i'm always one to say hope is not a strategy that needs to be buried and, and removed from my language to a this is what we're going to do and these are the outcomes we're going to achieve so that's probably my biggest struggle right now is to get rid of the noise you mind if i challenge you a little go Given what we've just discussed and given the current environment, is this not the best possible time to be selling what you sell? Yes, absolutely. Are you upping the quota? Um, I'm just doubling my target overnight, yep. Right, okay. <laughs> my question is this, in terms of how you are coaching your salespeople to take full advantage of this God-given opportunity, where most of your clients, I suspect, have salespeople who are licking their wounds, staring at the phone, aggressively praying it will ring, where their pipeline fell off the cliff and they were focused on all the wrong things. They were focused on dials and emails and all that kind of gubbins. What are you saying to your managers in order to have them raise the bar of your salespeople? So I can talk to myself on this in terms of the, 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 the direct sales reports that I've got. And that is to control the controllables right now. Absolute laser focus on the things that you can control. And just I coin a phrase from a, a previous leader I used to work with, which is just doing the things. And it goes to that control the controllables. Continue doing the things consistently 
and drinking your own champagne. So they know what good looks like. They know exactly what we coach to, what we talk about. And that means they're in the beautiful position to articulate to other people exactly how they're driven, how they're coached, what good looks like for them, and have that, again, kind of authentic, comfortable conversation. And I think the only... One of the good things to come out of COVID is people have relaxed a little bit in terms of having those sorts of conversations and confidence has has gone up in terms of being able to just welcome people into your home and and have a a human-to-human conversation. But that is what I do and will continue to tell my team. It's control what you can control, be yourself, and talk to others about what you know well, and that is how I'm being coached how I'm being driven through the, the, through the platform to what good looks like. And how are you getting coaching? Good question, Marcus. I have sort of opened my wings, really, to talking to people like you, to talking to others, you know, in the community, to sharing new ideas and new thoughts. Being a CEO can be a lonely world. You don't have a manager saying, here's what you should be doing, or let me coach you through to a, a new realisation. So that means I've, I've just branched out really and created a new community of people that that can help me do that very good excellent Kate thank you so much I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation how can people get on with you well they can find me uh, on LinkedIn uh, Kate Lewis uh, uh, you can just uh, tag me there or at eforenable on Twitter and on LinkedIn or just Kate at eforenable.com you can find me there brilliant Kate Lewis, thank you very much for being so insightful and for being so open. I thoroughly appreciate it. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, if you feel that you'd like to comment, then feel free. Get in touch with either myself or Kate. If you feel that it's worthy of sharing, then comment, like, and share. And please subscribe to the Inquisitor podcast. We love having your comments, your feedback. And if you think that you would be a great guest or there's someone specifically you think would be a great guest for it, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe, happy selling, and go out there and bring home some bacon. Bye-bye.